In this episode, you're gonna meet my man, Dan. Daniel Nicolaisen, DP, Director and Purveyor of Excellence Behind the Camera. We're talking about how to market yourself. Do you buy or do you rent a kit? And Dan's hate for new TVs making all of his films looks like they were shot on a home video camera. And much, much more. So grab a marshmallow, pull up a log. It is story time. You got cues? Throw them down below or drop me a line. Enjoy. We've got Daniel here and he's incredibly talented, very good at what he does, uh, but I'll let him tell you, not me. All right. So Daniel, what is it that you do? So I'm a filmmaker. I call myself a filmmaker because it just encapsulates everything. Um, I make documentaries for television, be that as a freelance cameraman or DP, however you want to call it. Uh, and I also DP on sort of more commercial shoots. I have a production company called Landfall. Uh, and so I'm able to sort of dip in and out between running productions and being a freelancer for other people. You practice that. So Daniel and I typically talk on the telephone. And it's actually finally nice to see you face to face. Thanks to these um, things with COVID. And, uh, you know, yep. so good to be here. It's good to be so my here. first Thanks. question for you, we've talked about it a little bit, but it's the idea of how you package yourself up. Because you are obviously a freelancer, but you are also a production company. And I think a lot of freelancers and a lot of one-man bands find themselves in a conundrum of, how do I package myself up? Because I, you know, a couple of years ago, you wanted to be bigger, so you started the, the limited company, and you don't want to operate as just a sole operator. But then you go... Yeah, but you need to get some work in, so you just go take freelance work, and it's nice because you just get paid and you don't have to think about the production. So how do you do it, Daniel? Well, for a start, I'm a production company, but I don't have any employees. It's just me, myself, and I, uh, and I hire in freelancers when it comes to doing things. Uh, and so for that reason, I do have the luxury of being able to skip in and out of being a freelancer for somebody else's production or taking on a whole production myself. So yeah, I run into this problem where I I don't know how to approach people. I mean, essentially you have to approach someone, you have to explain, I've got a production company but I'm a freelancer or whatever. But it's almost like you want to have two websites, you know, like you need to have a, tap, a website that's Daniel Nicolaisen. Um, Dot TV? Or, yeah, something right. like that. And then... Landfall.tv and everything is we, 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 us, you know, even though it's just me. Um, uh, but I think this is a common thing. This is very much what happened, I feel like, five years ago. Maybe it could have been b before that. But it was like everybody who I was working with in the freelance space was like, I want to be bigger to take on bigger productions. But they've gotten to a point where they're like, 75% mm, of my work's a freelancer. So am I really a production company? I mean, I can do more but do you really want to do more and take those roles on? Because production is a different beast in and of itself. When you're a freelancer and you have the, the, the luck of walking on set, doing your job and walking away, that's pretty special. Whereas when you think of a production, it consumes your life for the period of time that the production's on. Mm. And you go, for that additional cash or whatever it is that you're getting out of it, is it really worth it? Mm. And then as we have talked about, it's, you know, packaging it up and saying, okay, to this client, I'm Daniel, but to this client, I'm Landfall. Mm. And then it's like, okay, well, then how do you broadcast who you are? Is it through, can I talk about it on social media? Am I Daniel or am I Landfall? And what happens when these clients start to see each other and have conversations over coffees? So as you say, the two, the two website 
situation is often how I view, say like the corporate headshot photographer and the wedding photographer. Mm -hmm. You need two websites because the guy who's getting the corporate headshot doesn't necessarily care Mm. that you do weddings. Mm. He will appreciate the fact that you do weddings because your imagery is going to be great and you're going to have loads of skills and you can deliver on the day. But he doesn't need to see your wedding photos. He wants to just see corporate headshots. Mm. And same for the wedding. The wedding, the person who's planning the day of their dreams, they don't need to see, you know, people in ties and suits. They want to see weddings. Proof that you can shoot a wedding. Yeah. So yeah, think, well, exactly. Nobody who's, get, who's getting their wedding photos done wants to be inspired by corporate headshots, do they? And yeah, the two have uniquely different um, aspects to them that that other person needs. But I guess, and, and then the hard thing for me is because I'm also a director, I'm a producer, I'm an editor. I'm a you need 17 editor. websites. I mean, it's just going to be, exo- it's exactly. going to be expensive on the website. And it, it does get confusing. You know, I, have a, I had a problem, you know, a, a year ago where a client's uh, approached me and said, um, can you shoot this for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they said, well, can we have a conversation on Wednesday? Here's the script. And I'm, I look at the script and go, yep, looks all good. Yeah. <laughs> Call them up and on Wednesday and we talk about it. And, and it's like, is that all? It's like, where's, and I'm like, well, yeah, no, there's nothing out of the ordinary there. Yep, I can, I can, you know. <laughs> and he's thinking he's approached me as sort of like more like a director um, can you please script this up sort of thing and I'm sort of like and there was a huge you know problem because we I was like oh dude I didn't realize you approached me in that way you know and that, so that's so you, you know, so he mm-hmm. assumed you were wearing a particular hat on that day and he you did, thought yeah. you were wearing yeah different... and I mean it could have been one step further and I was producing the whole thing you know I could have been calling locations up and you know get it going the whole way I could have hired a producer by then you know to work alongside uh, you know, so um, so yeah, it's a problem. But the biggest problem you face is what do you want to do? You know, like for me, I, I can't go and shoot something and not direct it, and I can't go and direct someone something and have someone else shoot it. It's just for me, it's a real difficulty because I love them both. I love directing, and I also love editing as well. I'm an editor first and foremost. Um, well. First, I wouldn't say foremost now, but um, but you but know, there's a title for that. Are you say it's pre- a hor- it's a horrible title, but predator. Yeah, a predator. Uh, yeah, well, it's true. I mean, it's and you have to like sort of figure it out what it is you want to do. For me, you know, I, I have a documentary background, um, and I, I think I've come to the realization that I just really love working alongside a great director and being a director of photography, which I think has just as much a language of communication as actually the script itself, you know. Uh, And I've worked on some great productions where it was me and the director working very much 50-50 on it, and I was very much based, you know, like solely focusing on the the cinema language, you know, how you you tell the scene, the story. And he was, you know, on the, doing more the script, the bigger picture, where we needed to be going to shoot the next scene, whatever. Uh, that was a really great director-shooter relationship in the documentary world. Um, and then, uh, you know, I recently did a tourism production um, in New Zealand, and uh, in that scenario, I was the director and the camera guy, but then you have to have a really decent assistant team there so that they're essentially just putting your camera on your shoulders. And I think for me, you know, 
I think essentially I am a documentary cinematographer. I'm, I, I don't. I, I would love to shoot big films and stuff like that. Um, I'm, you know, I started at film school and did drama, um, and would love to do drama again one day. But I just, I'm not on the trajectory at the moment to be going down this kind of, you know, shooting Star Wars soon type uh, thing, which is a much different beast. Um, I'm definitely a shoot from, you know, a, a, and a shoot from the hip, but actually on the shoulder. So yeah, a little bit of both, and you know, and have that intimate relationship with your subject and how you're telling a story and that's why I love documentary because you can sort of think on the ground and uh, yeah I I mean I would I could never go into that other world because I enjoy the documentary component of it where it's storytelling there and it changes and shifts based on the conversations that you're having or the experiences that are going on or in your cases like what was happening in Miramar years ago when you were on the ground I feel like it was just shaping and evolving. It's a, you would get access to somebody, so you'd have to follow that. Very much a journalistic, documentary, mm. exploratory sort of filming, as opposed to, there's your storyboard. Go deliver your storyboard. Yeah. But should we get some coffee? Yeah, totally. Yes! So in our little intermission, it was the idea that or you're confused because you don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. No, I mean, it's, it's a problem that I have to, uh, I think, at some point I'm going to have to make a decision, you know, which path I go down because, uh, you know, and also, I, I mean, I, I was, I've only been shooting really for six years. Um, before that, I was shooting, but I, I wasn't really focusing on camera science, on, you know, these gamma curves that we now are so familiar with. Um, uh, and, you know, I think I hired my first set of actual cine primes, um, you know, not actually that long ago, um, uh, you know, four or five years ago. So it's, um, you know, for that reason, I've definitely chosen I really love cinematography and want to go down that route. So I'm kind of, as a 40-year-old, I started cinematography as a 35-year-old, um, even though before then I have 15 years of the film language up my sleeve from just being an editor, from shooting drama at film school, from going out and shooting. I have shot many documentaries since then, but, but when I'd say cinematography, I mean going down this path of actually trying to elevate myself uh, into a much more a higher end sort of type of cinematography that involves the bigger cameras, the bigger lenses, the, you know, all of that. Um, so at some point I did make a decision, I want to be a director of photography. And that's like five years in and I'm sort of suddenly, I miss being a, a hip shooter in Africa, <laughs> you know, or a, um, a hip shooter on the mountains or whatever, you know. So it's kind of, I'm going back into trying to start de developing documentaries or whatever. Um, but so I, I feel like with that skill set though, I mean, even just the, the brief conversation about being a predator, it's like all of these experiences and all of this practice and all these various fields, you become a jack of all trades, a master of none. You then go down a vertical and you go, Ooh, okay, I think I'm going to be a DP. And you get, you get up the rung and you start climbing and you're like, yeah, yeah, but I, but I really like that, some of that other stuff. Mm. And I, 
I think the fear, I'm speaking for myself, not for you, but the fear is, is that I enjoy all of it. I enjoy all of it so mm. much that I would be terrified to just be one thing mm. because then it puts me in a little box and yeah, I might climb the ladder, but I don't necessarily want to be there. I'd rather have a bunch of ladders mm. and want a bunch of options and then utilize the, the personal project side of me to maybe play on those other rungs a little bit. Because, I mean, people ask me what I am. I have no idea. I'm mm. a lot of things. Depending on what you need, I will probably serve a different purpose. My favorite job on a big set is to be the runner. To have everything run through Campfire Creative. I run the production. But I'm literally the guy who buys coffees on the day. Yeah. Because yeah. I want to be, be close to the camera. I want to see what's going on with the camera. And I know what lenses we should be maybe be using or what the scene should be like or sitting next to the director and seeing what the director is thinking and maybe like listening in, edging in. Mm. But then I also enjoy being able to float around the set and be on, be on set mm. because that's part of the joy of being on set oh, I mean, is you get to enjoy the people that are on it. And then there's, you know, the I, I love, you know, I love being out in the field um, in some hairy location you know, obscure location or whatever you want to call it with just you and a director and maybe one or other. Um, and then I love just as much being on a slightly bigger crew. I'm never really on a massive crew, but, um, but you know, everyone's got their roles and, you know, and it just runs so smoothly. And I just love that, that team environment, you know, when it's a bit bigger and it's a bit more cushy and stuff. And I don't want to give one up for the other one. It's, um, you know, like it's it's all it's all great, and I, and I think for that reason, that's maybe why it's so good having a production company is because at any point I can just do whatever I want. You know, like I can I can put myself in the director's seat or put myself in the shooting seat. Um, I can do the types of productions that I want to be doing, which I still don't know what that is. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's yeah, we do, we do all have to, tr unfortunately, in this industry and especially in this town in London, I mean, it's a it's a big wide industry and you have to be pigeonholed. Um, people want to know what you are. And so at some point I came up with the title of myself being the kind of gritty, authentic commercial shooter, you know, because I have this documentary background or whatever. And there but could be a new niche. Well, no, it was a big deal at the time. Authenticity was a big word sort of five years ago. Um, and that was kind of what I thought, I'll pitch myself that way. And I still kind of try to, if, if ever anyone needs the pitch, that's... That's what I'll do, but I kind of have a little bit of a background smirk going on. <laughs> yeah. I'm the gritty DOP. <laughs> uh, I, but I feel like there's, I mean, you look at photography, you look at what's mainstream. It's like you want really high-end fashion, but you don't want it to feel like high-end fashion. So you go with the nitty-gritty. It feels a bit more raw, but they want somebody with a commercial eye, right? So you can go on set or you... You go on a shoot, they maybe want one key or one flash, and then can you style it and make it look nice? Mm. So it's taking the, a fashion photographer, putting them in to this gritty side of things, and like, what can you deliver on a day? Mm. And I feel like all of us are pressed to do more with less, yeah. either less budget or less of a crew. And I think the more tools you have in your toolbox, mm. the better you're going to be all around. 
you'd, I'd be more inclined to hire somebody like you than somebody who's just a straight up DOP that only does those sorts of projects. Because yeah, I feel like you've got a, a wrath of experience and knowledge. So on set, you would be more helpful yeah. given things that can go sideways because you understand all of these. You're going to shoot better because you understand the edit. You've directed, so you know how to get the best out of cameramen. So maybe when the director's not being very clear, you can then be more clear. Mm. Be like, I want you, I, we need you to do this so it looks better in the camera. Sure. And, and to go back on, on what you, how you started that was, um, uh, you know, talking about I need a, a gritty kind of, um, a gritty shot you know, or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, that comes down to the script, isn't it? Like, or, or sorry, to the shot list and how you want to treat each film. And, you know, I think in some ways, if, with that example in mind, you know, gritty, uh, you know, I would script a shot maybe that might be wide and close, you know, so a wide lens and get nice and close so you can see every single hair follicle and... Um, and uh, you know that that could be an interpretation, that, but that that goes down in the script, and that's how you shoot that shot. But I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't know how to do a a, a mirage shot. <laughs> you know, if if we wanted to do a really romantic silhouette or whatever, um, and so that whole pigeonholing becomes totally just irrelevant. And actually, half the time you get hired by someone, you do start doing the job and you realise they totally don't want that look. They want something else that's a bit more fashion or They didn't even whatever. know what they wanted they didn't, when they said what they but wanted. But apparently you're the guy for the job and, and you pull it <laughs> off and do a great job of it and they're like, yeah, this is what we wanted. And like, well, that's, you know. Well, great. this to me I think is more relevant than anything in the industry. It's like when, I, when you get hired, you get hired because you're Daniel. I mean, yes, you've, you've got a lovely reel, your work's great. But if you then cast, you know, the net out to the next 3,000 DOPs and you look at their reels, you go, oh, man, do all the reels look the same? Do they have a similar vibe? What am I hiring here? And for me, I always feel like I want to hire the human. It's like mm. I, I feel like the guys that I bring in, the DOPs I can bring in could shoot it. But there's another thousand people that could shoot the exact same thing. So what I want is I want a great person on the day yeah. that can still deliver good stuff, but it's really about the relationship, the trust, what you've created in um, that rapport with the person, not just a reel. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've, yeah, I, I mean, dare I say it? I often, when I'm hiring crew, like I sort of look for friends that I want to work with, you know, because I know that we're going to have a great time, you know. And for me, filmmaking is. Still, as much as it's a job, I just love doing it. It's, um, and then as much as I love doing it, I'm very unlikely to pick a, up a camera on the weekend, you know. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've got soundies that I've worked with. That, you know, the second you turn around and start walking backwards, you feel a hand go on your belt, you know, and you just know that that dude's got your back. Um, or uh, of producers that I work with that just are great people, and we just have a great time over a drink at the end of the day. Um, but know that they've got my back, that they're totally onto it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like so, that that's the part that nobody talks about. It's like you can be really talented at your job. Mm. You can be a great soundie. Mm. But if you're a prick, 
mm. nobody's going to want to work with you. You get a couple of jobs, but then you're not working anymore. Yeah, absolutely. DP, yeah. same. Director, same. And, and you like, often hear of people that you work with, and it's like, oh, I won't be working with them again. Um, if you're that guy or that girl or that person, whatever you are, you get found out pretty quickly because as big as the industry is, mm. it's actually quite small. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like that's the stuff that people don't talk about. That's the I think we have to be careful thing though, in film school we don't talk about. That it's the soft skills that keep you that keep clients coming back. Mm. You might be able to deliver a job and that's great. But what you want is you want longevity in the industry. Mm. You don't just want to come in and make a splash and then trickle out. Yeah, you totally. wanna you don't want to have to continuously make phone calls to get clients coming back. Mm. You wanna do one job and have the client calling again and being like, hey, I've got this thing. Can mm. you come do this thing? And you go, yeah, we can make it work. It'll be great. Mm. And that's the way you, you know, it keeps the bills being paid. It keeps things ticking over. But if you have to constantly cold call everybody to get work, mm. one, it's exhausting mm. and it's tough. Mm. You know, if you're only good enough to go on one job. Yeah. It's, well, it's not sustainable, is it? To just keep searching for a new client. You need, you do need clients that are regular and, mm. Yeah, um, but also the the fact that you're hiring your friends, to me that speaks a lot. And you talk about this being a job, but at the same time, if I'm going to step away from say my family and the life that I love when I'm not working, why should I spend my time with people that I don't enjoy mm. when I'm at work? It's like no, no, no. no. I'm going to hire fun people so we have a laugh and a giggle. Mm. Well, and obviously that's a small pool though. You know, like you can't just constantly hire your friends because they probably don't know how to do the job. So. And that's why it's always a lovely uh, thing when you work with someone new that you've never worked before and it's like, love this person, you know, this is great, I might have made a new friend sort of thing. And for me, the lo a lot of the shooting that I do is very intimate, crews, small, uh, minimal, everyone has to do somebody else's job at, somebody, at some point. And it's really important that that is the unit. But, but you, you know, at the end of the day, you need to make sure that everyone's also really knows what they're doing because I've hired friends and they don't really know the job and I've just been like, Ooh, it's a bit of a millstone around the neck when you've got a friend on board that's <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, all right, dang yeah. it. I'm yeah. going to be friends. But then you keep it sweet and they go off the job and you're like, sorry, buddy, you can't, you, it, i got to hire somebody else. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I feel like that is... That sucks when that happens, but at the same time, it's like your friends. You got to tell them the truth, and they're going to be better for it in the end. Well, often if that's the case, that if you hire someone that's a friend, and you know they have to be available for a start, it doesn't take much for them to not be available. And suddenly, like, oh, well, you're not there, and yeah. Uh, but that's not really one of the biggest problems in my life, though. <laughs> so, so, go, so going back to it, packaging yourself up. I think what I'm hearing is that if you're going to package yourself up for a client, whether you're an individual or a company. You just have to be really targeted and tailored towards the person you're pitching. It's you can't just go, "Hey, I'm Daniel at Landfall. We can do your job." Yeah, I've often wondered. I, you know, when you email someone and approach them for the first time, I just want to copy and paste the last email, but it never works. You it know, just falls it, dead. It just yeah, you put it there, and you're like, "Oh, I can't really say that because they're going to think that I'm that." Or, you know, like I, they, they need to hear that I can do this or that. And so then you think, well, maybe there's paragraphs that I can copy and paste. And it's, sure, but I mean, at the end of the day, you may as well just start with a whole new email. Um, and yeah, have many Instagram feeds, many um, 
websites i don't know but then it just gets a bit ridiculous um i think the answer is probably at some point just to you know have different pages on your website i, I mean I, this is all very specific i wouldn't i wouldn't claim to know the answers but uh yeah you have to sometimes compartmentalize the different facets about yourself well i mean the other thing is what camera you own um, and what kit, you know, you want to be making revenue off your camera kit, mm -hmm. but some jobs, that's not the right camera for it. And do you own every camera under the sun or are you hiring? And so that means, are you going to be buying the kit for the jobs you want to do most? I guess you do, but the jobs that I want to do most probably can't afford that kit. Um, well, let's or, be clear. Th those cameras aren't like a couple of grand. They're like 50. Yeah. Exactly. So just, so just so the audience knows, we're not talking about the average Joe camera we're talking about yeah you know. there comes a point that the, those cameras very much have as much of a CV with that come with them that you, as you do you know the um, kicker is though when you buy that thing you've got to, you've got to be invested you've got to do a mountain of research you got to make sure that it's not only just a really good piece of kit it's yeah. actually a kit that people ask for yeah because I mean say in filmmaking the FS7 the Sony FS7 when I first bought it nobody was asking for it a year and a half later, clients were asking for it by name. And when they asked for something by name, that's when you go, okay, that camera's worth it. Or like the C300. Well, I have a funny problem with the FS7. So when I started out, you know, landfall and started doing a lot of productions um, for, I was doing work for Al Jazeera at the time and, uh, and some other productions. And I bought my first kit, real kit, not just a 5D or whatever I was using at the time. Um, I bought a Sony F5 and I still own that F5 and still shoot with it and it's a great 4K Super 35 camera it's really great the dynamic range was uh, is just as relevant to this day you know um, and also with these plug-in things you've suddenly got 16-bit RAW or with the R7 recorder or the R5 but you say F5 the amount of times that's been mistaken by the producer is the FS5 Oh, so you shoot with an FS5. Well, that's not quite an FS7. Um, <laughs> and then you just find yourself stumped trying to explain why your camera's so hot when you know very well your camera's not actually that hot. You yeah. Know? It's not like it's a, you know, an Arri or if it's anything full frame or anything like that. So, yeah, I have this problem. So the FS7 is now a very famous television workhorse. Um, and I have to kind of explain away why I have an F5 when actually it's the big brother to that that spawned that camera. Um, and, it, and it'd be brutal if you just bought it and then somebody like Ari or somebody else or Sony or Canon brings out the camera then then people start talking about it. So you're 50k out mm. and then somebody's bought out a new camera and you're like, no, 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 no my camera's just as good. Mm. You know, so the, the weighing up, we often talk about, you know, oh, what camera should we buy? Yeah. And I, and my response is naturally, it doesn't matter. Mm. But, I mean, in, I mean, but I, in your space, in the DP space, it matters more in your space mm. than it does in my space. Mm. Because I can get away shooting on all sorts of cameras because I'm not shooting that sort of a thing. Mm. And uh, owning a camera is different because then you can, you know, it gets rented, it gets rented from you, so it ends up earning its money back. Mm. And you go, is it going to get its money back in the first year, two, three, four, five? You know, and, and mm. I think that that's tough, especially when all this technology is coming out. Mm. Like, I mean, even the, the chat that was being had over lunch about the various cameras that are coming out and, 
you know, does it need to be spec'd for Netflix? Because Netflix is commissioning a whole load of new projects. You've got Apple, you've mm-hmm. got things like the BBC, because we're in the UK, and you've got a lot of broadcast journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to be? Or do you want to be the guy that just rents it? Which is fine, too. And if you want a full-time job in itself, you know, like just renting a camera out is... I, I, I tried to set up that page on my <laughs> website, you know, five years ago when I bought, bought all my kit. And, well, it's more than five years now. Uh, and I just remembered, like, a, it would have been good revenue or whatever, but at the end of the day, you, it's a full-time job pushing that out, and you don't want to be making that a thing. So, And when people rent things, they treat them differently than when you buy them. Totally, yeah. And that's the thing is, like, you, you can't... Yeah, you can't be going out shooting with kit that you don't know where it was on the last shoot and, you know, can fall over at any point. So to buy or to rent, what do you do, Daniel? Well, as a documentary guy, I have to own something, so I'm ready to shoot next week sort of thing. Um, and it is a huge part of my day rate, you know, so it's um, it's important to have something that I'm vesting in um, because I don't think we could survive on just our day rate as the person alone. We kind of need to be turning over other revenue and be smart business-wise and stuff. Um, uh, I was—I mean, that's what I was going to say before—is that with the Sony, with the F5, I found myself in a position I actually had to lower the price of it to meet the FS7 because it was just as good a camera. And I'd started realizing that my F5—it's a camera person's camera. But it's no production company is going to care about that. So yeah, if if they want to shoot on an FS seven, that means they've they're expecting an FS seven budget. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't want to be shooting on FS FS seven. I hate FS seven, so I don't like working with them. Um, uh, but I don't the either, and I own one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they are a much smarter camera to own, aren't they? Because they're so much cheaper and. Um, and they're so much, um, and they hire out for just the same amount, you know, so it's, it's smart. But. but this is an interesting, the concept of over-delivering. It's like a job was on the table. It said we needed an FS7, which is lower, it's inferior to your camera. You then come and go, I want to do that job. I want to take on that job. I don't want to shoot on an FS7. I'm going to bring a better camera to the table. I'm not going to try and nickel and dime and fight to get the value of my camera. I'm just going to bring it because it's what I'm comfortable using anyway. Mm. And you just go, uh, I'm just going to deliver it. I'm not going to ask any questions or complain. I'm just going to bring my camera, take that rate, do a great job. Mm. Yep. There's loads of people that go, like, no way. I need to make sure that I'm getting every single penny out of that camera. But in truth, you want to make the project work. You want to build the relationship with the client. You want to do the job. Yeah, exactly. At some point, you have to take ownership of being the director of photography and the person who is actually the head of that department and that is making the decisions. And sure, with with any producer, you're going to have to sell it through to them, uh, explain it, and that'll never go away. You have to sort of make sure that they know that you're doing the best thing for the production. Uh, Yeah. But then, yeah, you do get productions and it's kind of like they want it shot on a certain camera and you sort of talk to them, you go, why? And, you know, if it's... Scratch that, actually. Um, Because there's another whole big thing that we haven't talked about, which is what camera are you aligned with? If you own 
an FS7, you're an FS7 shooter. If you own an F5, then you might be slightly different. If you own an Ariamira, you know, you're suddenly, you've got a little bit more respect, you know, and none of these people are necessarily any more talented the other, than the other person. Um, they just have a bigger toy, so they're thrown bigger jobs. It's not even a bigger toy. It's just, do they have, which club did, the, did they join, you know? Um, and, and actually, it comes down to price tag, you know, like at the end of the day, which, which was the ticket you paid for, you know? And, and I mean, that's, I find myself in this position now that, you know, I, if I'm going to own kit, I need, I need to be a certain, have a certain camera. I'm not going to say what that is, but I have to have a, a certain <sighs> camera aligned to me, you know. Well, I'm not about to make these big sweeping statements, but I mean, I think, you know, we all know the cameras that are the ones that the commercials all use and and that's what you have to have even if you're just shooting turning up and shooting television at least it, um uh you turn up and they know you as the that camera guy you know i always find that stuff fascinating because obviously between like you and i or another dp or another director you look at it and you go i know the difference like i know what camera was used on that whereas the majority of the time a client won't in say the corporate space they wouldn't necessarily know if you bought a massive brick and you sat it on a tripod and you said that's the camera they go wow that's big that looks heavy that looks very expensive great but then you shot everything on your iphone mm. there might be discrepancy they might be able to tell what was shot on an iphone but a lot of times you can't tell the difference between what's shot on a dslr the average punter can't tell the difference between what's shot on a dslr and what's shot on one of your Ep red epics or I would else. say though that yeah sure but I would say that you know when you're watching a proper film versus watching something that's done on a much lower budget you can see it, it that I agree well actually you might be right because then you go over to your mum's house and turns on her Samsung big 4k Samsung television she's got it in smart cine mode or whatever it is which does all the intra frames um, and then suddenly it looks like any Titanic, for goodness sake, looks like it's been shot on a home video camera, you know. Um, yeah, you're like, oh, that looks horrible. Uh, yeah. but, then, but then we're all watching this stuff on our phones, you know. But I'd rather watch it on a phone that's actually a progressive monitor than a, um, well, actually, yeah. I mean, you get these smart TVs, and it's just disgusting what they do to an image. And people yeah. will watch it and not know anything's wrong. They're watching Titanic, and it literally looks like it was shot on my old, you know, family home video camera. Um, yeah, from, 50 frames a second. From not, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess what I, what I always want to get across is that kit does matter, but there's a point when it doesn't. If it's like it gets in the way of your ability to create something, then that's where we got a problem. Yeah. It's like, but kit makes your life easier. Mm. Right. So it's like, yes, I could probably go film something in my, with the phone in my pocket, but I'm not going to, because I want more control over it. I want to be able to control the levels of my audio. I want to be able to have different camera angles and you can't necessarily do that as easily on three iPhones that you then have to airdrop all the folders over. It's to me, that's not, easier it's actually more difficult mm. whereas when you have professional cameras you can change everything that you want yeah they're more expensive but they make my life easier that's important to me mm. and you go cameras the you know 
big toys, expensive toys, are they actually making your life easier? Are the buttons out there so you can actually fiddle with the buttons, you don't have to go into menus? And it's making your life better and the shoot better, then you're on to a winner. But I think if you're just buying the next camera to buy the next camera to get the next job, you go, is that, that's, that's when I go rental. Yeah. Well, then there's the big question, do you just rent or do you own? And, and which is what you asked right at the start of this. And I, I mean, it really depends. I mean, I'd love to not own kit and just turn up. Uh, and, you know, but I just don't think if that, that that's ever going to suit the type of work, work that, that you I want do. to do. Or the work, yeah, the work that I want to do. I think for basically for me, I always have to own a camera. I need to be, that's, I'm always going to be a guy that can turn up with a camera and shoot whatever you want and know that it's going to be on spec for what you need to deliver. I feel like every cameraman needs a camera. Not a 5D. Every cameraman needs a camera. You can plug XLRs into and you could go do it. If the client called you this morning, we need it now go and you could shoot something. Mm. I feel like you have one if you're a cameraman. It might not be the camera because you can rent the camera, mm. but you have one yeah. to get yourself out of a jam. Yeah. And so what that is, you know, you go industry standard. Yeah. And then you have an industry standard thing that you know you can get out mm. there that's not going to break the bank. Mm. You've got one. Yeah. And then you rent the other stuff. Yeah. And so now you've got all these full-frame cameras, you've got, um, uh, you know, small cameras, you know, the range that's come out from Sony now or, this, or Canon or, um, uh, you know, even the Blackmagic cameras, you know, all of this is like, do I just want to own a tiny little... Like I was thinking the other day, I was just going to buy an FX6, a Sony FX6, which is just a, a little camera with a full-frame sensor. I don't actually know the full specs, but I mean, it's probably... a perfectly good camera to use for anything I do and it's got the added value of being able to go straight on to just my handheld gimbal you know and then see this is where it's funny because you're far more nerdy about camera equipment than I am right you and don't I, know what that camera is no I have no idea what the camera is and I don't know what 90% of this stuff is thing is that if, if I get it it's it's basically I mean what it is is it's the full frame version of the FS5 which is the little camera against the fs7 um and uh seems to be pretty reasonable for just having a camera that you own you can turn up for the half the television shows i make or whatever that's all i need you know and it's half i mean a quarter of the outlay um and you know own that camera and then for the shoots that i want to be doing hiring and the big guns and then you know uh, that could be anything. So, because but, most and, and, of the young guns that are coming into this world aren't going to go drop 50K on a camera. What are we, what do you want to inspire the younger generation of filmmakers that are going to take our jobs one day? What do you want to talk to those guys about? God. Does Daniel, what do you tell Daniel when he was 20 about getting into this business? What advice would you give him? Well, I don't know. I guess I, I wish I'd, I knew more what I wanted to do. I mean, you have to work at what you want to do. You can't just... And that's, I, I guess, for me, I've always kind of... A lot has fallen on my lap, and I've kind of 
gone in that direction and I possibly could have changed what fell on my lap if I'd chosen that's where I want to be or whatever. So, uh, I mean, the biggest thing is wanting to know, knowing what you want to be. Um, and once you know that and you have a path set before you, yeah, I mean, uh, I think no matter how talented you are, how uh, good you are at it or whatever, there's also going to be always the fact that you're just 20. And yep. people, people also are, you know, sometimes wanting age uh, in a person. So as a 20-year-old, have a 20-year-old's camera. You know, maybe a bit bigger, age up a bit to a 25-year-old's camera or whatever. Maybe that's the best advice is, you know, don't forget that you are a, a you know, d don't be too big for your shoes, I think. Maybe that's terrible advice. I think that's a very good piece of advice. Is that, no. look, you are fresh to this game. You might be super talented. You can nail a TikTok video. And look, I'm old and I can't do what you guys can do in TikTok. But it's like, also understand the game. Not that you need to start at the bottom rung. But I don't want to be too unaspirational either. Like, I mean, you should be aspiring to do the biggest films you possibly want to do. But I mean, if you're talking about just, you know... Um, <sighs> For me, know. it's aspire to meet every single person that you can find. If you if I was if I was the twenty year old me, I would go and work on any and every set I could get on. I would go run. I would go assistant, edit, direct, or whatever the heck I could get my hands on. I would go do, mm. because in this in this town in this world, it's connections. Mm. It's like oh yeah, that guy, mm. I, that guy that I did some work with years ago, mm. and he was interesting. He he was interested. Yeah yeah, let's see what he's doing. And I feel like that's where I look at some of these. This is, sounds like I'm on a pedestal. But it's like I look at guys that are coming into some of these jobs all high and mighty, and you just go, look, man, be here, be present, be helpful, build relationships. Because all these people on this set could be potential clients, could be potential work buddies down the line, but just be a good person to work with. I mean, old head on young shoulders, you know, if <laughs> I sort of... Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what I did. I, I worked, I did everything. I just, I shot my friend's, you know, charity video that they wanted to do, which was, you know, wasn't, was not flash at all, but it's kind of like it was, you know, it had, it was nothing towards any sort of trajectory that I was on. Um, uh, I'm trying to th think back to then, but I, I was an editor um, and I guess... But what I've heard you say is you wanted to figure out or you're I, trying to figure out what you want to be. And I think that as you do more, mm -hmm. you start to cancel things out of what you don't want to be, which is more important. So as you cancel those things out, oh, you're think, actually streamlining what you want to be mm. by canceling things out. Because it's easier to find things you like than yeah, it is but, to find things you don't. But in saying that too, we're all trying to make a buck and you know pay our rents, you know, and so you end up having to take everything, you know, if 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 you're not, you know, getting the jobs, it's very competitive out there, you know, and if you're not getting the jobs, then you need to be able to take that wedding video on the weekend, you know, as much as it irks you to say it or whatever, you know. Nope, I'm um, proud of it. <laughs> do it. I think it's. I, I think the more you the more you do, the more you begin to understand, and the more you have a better understanding of the industry. Mm. 
And therefore, when conversations come up, you know mm. what that entails. Mm. If you do a wedding video and you really love it, there's no shame in being a wedding filmmaker or a photographer. No, totally, Zero. totally. I mean, and if you do it and you go, I do not ever want to do that again in my life, you know that. Yeah. And you go, when that job comes along and that money's not right, you really don't want to do it, but you need that money and you go, all right, I'm going to swallow that pill and I'm just going to go take it. Because you need, because that's something you need mm. to go do. You you know what goes into it. Yeah, I still do jobs that I need to do at the moment because I just haven't had anything for a while, you know. Um, so I mean, yeah, that's always going to be there. Um, but you definitely you, you want to be able to find ways to do that less each time. Or does that make sense? I don't know. But I, just looking, going back to your thing, looking back, I think I possibly wish I worked alongside people more and better and maybe formed some actual partnerships. Um, I think that's so important with, and, and you know, now that I'm a bit older looking back, I, I don't really have uh, people that I've really developed a working relationship with that when they're going to shoot a documentary, I'm their guy, or if I'm going to shoot a documentary, they're my guy. Um, so yeah. That, that would be the biggest thing. So what do you think you can do now to help facilitate that for somebody else? Um, because you and the younger you wish you had done that. I mean, I would encourage that that's a thing to do. And so if you, if you did go to film school, you know, those connections are still... I mean, I'm from New Zealand. I went to film school in New Zealand. And the people that I know from film school, if I went back to New Zealand right now, you know, I, would, I feel like I, I would be better connected there than I am in the UK where I've been for 12 years. But this is also a tough market. Yeah, totally. It's a bit of a smaller pond in New Zealand, I guess. And um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but those connections are so important and you need to kind of like nurture them. I, 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 don't, I don't know the answers to these questions because, you know, I, I'm finding here I am with my experience now and I still have the same problems. I still don't know whether or not to have two websites. I still don't know uh, what it is I really want to do. And of course, it only takes a year like 2020 and you just lose all your focus anyway. And, you know, we all need to kind of do some deep, dark digging inside to <laughs> get ourselves back on track now, don't we? But, um, uh, yeah, there's no real... I mean, knowing what you want to do is a big deal, but it's also a big question. It's, you know, something that's not easy to do because, yeah, there is always going to be FOMO. I mean, or you could just continue doing everything and just enjoy the freedom that that, you know, if that's that's what you want to do you know I, well i i think it, this is the instagram dilemma right so somebody else some somebody younger somebody older looks at what you've done they look at your website and they go man daniel's got it figured out but the truth is none of us have it figured out and we're all working through it we're all trying to figure out where we want to go what we want to do how we want to go about doing it it's it's the way it all is mm. and in with all of my buddies from photography and filmmaking that's the case mm. You know, if you think you've got the answers, you're probably full of shh. You don't have the answers because the answers are ever evolving and they're always going to change depending on your life situation, depending on what's going on in the industry. Mm. You know, it's, and you just have to be okay with it. And I think it's, 
the joy is, is that we get to live in a little bit of flux. It might not feel joyful, but it's, you know, the fact that you can dip in, dip out, do that, do a little bit of that, do a little bit of this and go. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the joy of what we do. Mm. Right. And we work for ourselves so we can, okay, I can't remember the, the fellow who told me this, but we were sitting, it's a first, somebody was telling me about this ridiculous first world problem. The problem with the first world is that you are standing at a junction with all the opportunities in the world. And so you literally, you're paralyzed. You have no, no clue which way to go because there are so many paths. And the gentleman then says, the third world dilemma is you're standing at that junction and you only have one path because your daddy was a farmer, so you're gonna be a farmer. You don't have options. You don't have financial options. You can't go to school. You don't, there's only one way to go. So they have to dredge their own path. They have to carve their own route. You know, so, you know, our first world problem is we can be everything and anything we want to be. Mm. Well, that's actually tough. Yeah, lots of choices. Sometimes as paralyzing as no choice, isn't it? It's, it's actually easier to have one choice than it is to have a hundred. Mm. Because you go, well, that's the one choice. Mm. I'm just going to go down that path. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think... For all of us, it's, it's a very personal thing, right? It, going down the path for you, finding what it is that works for you is different than what works for me, which is different than what works for you, 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 and you. It's mm. tough. I think the, the most difficult part is not beating yourself up along the way mm. because you're just you, man. Mm. So... I'm going to cut this. You and I could go do this forever. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed Daniel. There's plenty more to see on Daniel from his website, both websites. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and he'll probably be on like a rolling with Weiler at some stage or another episode somewhere else. So uh, talk a burrito. We're out of here.